Hey y'all, we wanted to let you know that once again this week, for the sake of time, we've had to cut out some moments that we just love from this conversation. We've also brought back John Gielgud to cover up some of our naughtier language. So if you'd like to hear this conversation in its full, unedited version, please visit us on Patreon at patreon.com slash rudegrooms, where you can watch an archival live stream of the recording session. We're really excited today. We have somebody that I've actually wanted to sit down with a glass of whiskey for a long time and just talk. She is a director, a writer, an educator whose work spans decades and continents. She is a... <laughs> it's uh, true. It's I'm true. 95 years old. <laughs> She's a fantastic teacher over at the Atlantic Theater Acting School and has produced work all over from New York City to the Moscow Art Theater. Please welcome to This Wooden O, Anya Saffer. Hi. Hi. It's so nice to see you. It's so nice to see you. Cheers. Cheers. Um, This is such a good Manhattan that Monty made. Thank you. Anya was actually the script analysis teacher for Montgomery and myself at the Atlantic Conservatory Program in Association with NYU. So yeah, I think the last time that we saw you, or at least that I saw you, you were getting ready to go and do a directing project in Mexico. Yeah, I wonder if when I saw you then, I was I was about to go to Mexico City for the first time? I think it was. Oh, wow. Little yeah. did I know. I mean, at that time, I had been invited to go teach some workshops in Mexico City by a, a lovely guy, David Friedman. And I went, you know, in a kind of here goes nothing spirit. And it was, I, I almost want to say it was a life-changing experience. I fell completely in love with the city. Have you been there? I've not, no. Have you been there? No. But I've watched Basil Romeo and Juliet so much that I feel like I know it. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure, that's it's the same, right? Um, no, it has. It's not the same. It's an amazing city, mm-hmm. completely amazing. I fell madly in love with it. I loved the teaching. I was teaching all these, working with all these professional actors there who were just blowing me away every day. The city itself is so decrepit and old and and elegant and. It's and the food and the people, it's just, it's, I fell completely in love with it. So since then, I've been back, I think, three times, and Mm -hmm. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be back there in a couple of weeks to, to do auditions for the play that I'll be directing there. Which is? In, I'm directing the Mexico premiere of Paula Vogel's Indecent Mm -hmm. at a beautiful theater called Teatro Helenico. Um, I mean, you know me. I'm like a, a classics person who like lives in a cave with my old books. And so when they asked me if there was a new play that I'd want to direct, I, mm-hmm. my first thought was, no, why are you asking me that? I hate that question. <laughs> but then my second question, my second thought was, wait a second, I would like to direct Paula Vogel's Indecent. Mm-hmm. So um got a big grant from the Mexican Arts Council and this fabulous theater is hosting us and so I'm directing it. Now, you said you hate the question, is there a new play that you like to <laughs> direct? I'm really curious about what is it about classics specifically that you prefer over new work? Okay, I'm going to answer this for real, but I, I warn you that I might become extremely annoying. Do it. Awesome. That's Absolutely what this program is all do. about. Usually is I'm it? the annoying one, so it'll be luck. nice that someone else is jumping on that train in <laughs> yeah. my stead. Thank you. Um, okay. So you know how in Hamlet, Hamlet and Horatio are um, 
philosophy students at the University of Wittenberg. Yes. So when I was directing that play years ago and I was researching and I, I learned that the difference between being a philosophy student now and a philosophy student when Hamlet and Horatio would have been philosophy students is that now to study philosophy is to do a kind of historical survey of what people through history have considered to be the truth. And you're, you know, you, you write papers about that. You're tested on that. But what I learned is that at the University of Wittenberg, which actually was the center of philosophy in the Western world when Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, you're not doing a historical study. You are actually looking for the truth. That's your job as a philosophy student. <laughs> and, um, that's my oblique way of answering your question. Why, why am I more interested in the classics? I mean, I feel like, as you know, as Monty knows, because I've talked to him about this, I've been sort of plagued with questions about, you know, death, existence, meaning, not just plagued, but interested in, excited by. And I feel like there are a few writers, you know, Euripides, Shakespeare, Chekhov, Beckett. There are just, there are certain writers that are just the most helpful that bring you back to those essential questions the most directly and don't answer the questions, but bring you into contact with the questions the most powerfully. And so is it, is it that playwrights today seem to be more like scholars of philosophy rather than philosophers themselves, or that you think your work as a director shifts in that way when working on? Well, I think that it's completely unfair to compare any play to Hamlet, let's say. And so I, I don't condemn any play that isn't Hamlet, but I feel like for those few years that I have on the earth, I want to work on those almost, to me, religious texts that have the most to teach me. There's a lot of contemporary writing that is not as much interested in asking questions as answering questions. And I, I, I have a particular disinterest in that. Mm. I could not agree more. A few years ago, I kind of rediscovered Shakespeare after having spent a period of time mostly doing new work in film. Um, and it had been years since I'd done Shakespeare. Is that right? Yeah, this was 20... 20- I don't think I knew that. Yeah. I think of you as, you know, always my Shakespeare friend. For about four years, almost exclusively new work. And then I got asked to do a lightly rehearsed week-long reading of Two Gentlemen of Verona during Shakespeare Dallas was doing the entire canon. And it was like, wow. in a week, I had a deeper, more fulfilling artistic process than I'd had in almost all of those mm. other processes, which had all been great. That, that's the, It's mm-hmm. like, it's not that I didn't enjoy working mm-hmm. on those new plays. They mm-hmm. were exceptionally fun and rewarding and fulfilling. Right. But they don't necessarily give you that feeling of almost touching yes. the great mysteries, yeah, you like know? the vein of humanity. Yes, right. I mean, you know, Freud has this phrase, or not a phrase, it's a word. And the word is that he invented religiosity which is different from being religious. To have religiosity is, a, is its own psychological thing. And it basically means that your disposition is such that you have a tendency towards desiring religious experience. Hmm. And I feel like Shakespeare kind of delivers on that. Absolutely. <laughs> like I was raised by atheists in my family. Just the fact that I'm interested in different world religions, just as a topic of conversation, makes me a bit of a freak because everybody's <laughs> such an angry atheist. Oh, really? Um, but I feel like I have in my in my temperament and my disposition 
religiosity. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's what connects me to Shakespeare. That's what connects me to the Greeks. It's like, it's touching that vein, like you say. And I love, I mean, there are a lot of, there's so many new plays to love and to admire, but it's a matter of whether or not they give you that experience of transcendence. You refer to those texts, you refer to them as religious texts, which I find interesting, especially coming from- <laughs> Oh my God, I'm a- so tedious. <laughs> yeah, but I do feel that way. I have no, to but admit that's, it. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting contrast, especially coming from, as you said, like a house of angry atheists. Right, so it's, right. it's fascinating to me that you would describe those, th- those works as sort of religious texts. Have you always looked at them that way? Well, you know, there are those moments. I mean, I don't, I'm sure you guys have your own my first exposure to Chekhov was directing Three Sisters. It was actually the first full-length play I ever directed, where all of a sudden you just feel yourself confronted with the big existential questions. So for me, yeah, I mean, you know, directing Three Sisters kind of cracked the world open for me, where I realized that, you know, longing is just actually the state of being human. (laughs) Or when I directed... The Winter's Tale, which was my first Shakespeare play, and I, I realized that what I, what I was actually attracted to in that play was my own terror that there is no evidence that someone can re- that someone really loves you. You have to have faith. Hmm. So, I mean, for you know, for me, you know, getting older and moving through time and existence is pretty. <laughs> intense. And I feel like these playwrights have been like my friends, my older, wiser. For example, next year, I'm going to be Uncle Vanya's age. Mm-hmm. No way. Yeah. Hmm. It's incredible. I mean, he's I'm going so to be- young. <laughs> well, either that or. <laughs> <laughs> I think we know what the, what the correct version is. <laughs> you know, and directing that play two years ago really helped me I think more gracefully navigate middle age than than I would have been able to without that play. Mm-hmm. Like more kindly to myself with more understanding, more wisdom, more perspective. So yeah, I guess I'm really reliant on these plays, I guess is what <laughs> what what it comes down to. I'm really reliant on them for my own moving through life and and coming up against the big questions that are really terrifying. But then, you know, you go through the, the, the sort of spiritual crisis of that moment of life helped by Shakespeare or Chekhov or Euripides or whoever it is. And then suddenly you're on the other side of it Mm -hmm. and you can look back on it and, and realize that you not only survived it, but that you're a little wiser and a little bit more peaceful. Do you feel like part of the comfort that you get from these works is while you are in the midst of asking the question to know that you are not the only one or that oh, these yeah. questions have been That's asked so well for said. a long time. So simply and well said. Yeah, absolutely. What I find fascinating about this is that you seem to find more solace in the asking of the question than someone attempting to try to answer it, Mm. which is very Chekhovian in a way. Mm -hmm. I remember (laughs) when we took Chekhov with you, I was trying to understand it for myself. And what I eventually came down with was the idea that life is hard, (laughs) but we will work 
<laughs> so that it gets easier for the next group of people. Mm. And it will be hard for us, but maybe that group that comes along that bad. We'll get to Moscow. Well, we'll get to Moscow. But spoken exactly. like spoken like a man who played Vershinin. Did you play Vershinin? No, I uh in in the Chekhov class I played uh Tuzenbach. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, okay, okay. Speaking of, you know, identifying the big question mm-hmm. that will never be answered. There's that great scene between Tuzenbach and Vershinin in Three Sisters, um, where Vershinin says what you just said a moment ago, which yeah. is, you know, it is not, it may not be for us to to have happiness, mm-hmm. but we will work, and I believe in progress. He says, and maybe in a hundred years, maybe in two hundred years, people will know happiness. Mm-hmm. Tuzenbach, who it should be noted is having kind of a bad day, um, <laughs> says, well, he says, no, he says, no, he says in a hundred years, I mean, you know, again, this is in the 1890s. He says in a hundred years, they will have invented flying machines, perhaps people will know so much more than we know now. And yet life will be the same. Mm-hmm. We will still fear death. We will feel confused. We will long for love. Life will be essentially the same. And Vershinin says, no, 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 no. Life will be better. We are making progress as a species. We're making progress. It is for us to sacrifice our lives now to lay the foundation for future happiness. Mm -hmm. So Chekhov leaves us with that question. That particular scene between Tuzenbach and Irina, to this day... I walked away from that scene never quite feeling like I got it. Mm. I never felt oh like I nailed you, it. You just you just <laughs> come over to my apartment anytime. Yes. <laughs> or you find yourself in arena and we'll work on it. Hello. Because, but Daniel, but Irina Daniel, right here. you 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 oh my god. Well that's strange, but also <laughs> kind of beautiful. But in that I remember in that scene, like to this day, it's still I just I I love well, that. Well that that Tuzanbuck Arena scene is the greatest scene in the canon. So that is a long-winded way of me asking you because you've been you've been studying this work for a very very long time and how do you continue to find new things in it or what's it like for you going back and reading the same the same work at different points in your life Oh my god yeah wow You're so good at interviewing people my god <laughs> You're like you could be like the next Terry Gross. Mom, if you're listening, there's an official <laughs> No, uh, Questions that- are so, they're just to the right to the heart of the matter. I mean, well, it's like every couple of years I reread Anna Karenina. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing how every time you go back to it, it's a different novel. It's changed. Mm-hmm. At first, you know, you read it in your 20s, you think it's about love. Then you read it in your 30s, it's about death. You read it in your 40s, it's about the earth. It keeps changing. So the these plays... You know, the multitudes that they contain is completely impossible. It's it's not possible that they even exist and contain so much, but of course they do exist. For example, Uncle Uncle Vanya, me, born and bred in New York City, born of people who were born in New York City, developed this whole new relationship to trees and nature through Dr. Astrov. And that's something that only happened in the last five years. Mm. And I've been working on Chekhov for far longer than that. They just keep unfolding. You don't even have to do anything for mm. that to happen. You just have to be around them. And they it, they just keep unfolding with that bottomlessness that 
people talk about when they talk about Shakespeare. And how is it different directing versus teaching these plays? Or is it essentially the same? Well, I don't know how interesting this is to your listeners. I mean, I don't know how many of our listeners are... It's a people. listening. It's a listenership full of nerds. D- dive right into it. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah. Hi, hi, nerds. <laughs> yeah, this is a. This is, the title is this wouldn't know. Okay, this great. Is for, yeah, right, this is for okay, theater great. nerds that, who drink. I find uh-huh. that tremendously. It's so reassuring to be reminded of that. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, well, so a couple of years ago, I just you know I was going to direct Uncle Vanya, and I thought, well, wait a minute. What does this mean? I've been teaching it for many years. I haven't directed Chekhov in ten years. I've been directing. Shakespeare, which is so much more choreographic. I mean, you can really sculpt and direct Shakespeare. The images and the poetry just demand specific attention. And Chekhov is a whole different thing of a kind of, you know, you're dealing with a sort of infinite flexibility. It's like I always say to my students, like Chekhov writes the actor's blank checks, whereas Shakespeare actually needs you to meet him at the image. So I, I, I was going to direct Uncle Vanya, knowing that my 47th year was, you know, just a few years away. And then the question immediately confronted me, but wait a minute, how do you direct Chekhov? Because teaching Chekhov, you can just sort of introduce people to the world of the plays and into the unique inner life of each character. And they do their own thing with him. And, and you know, Chekhov said that his holy of holies was human freedom. Mm-hmm. He was the grandson of a serf, of a, of a slave who had bought his freedom. And he felt like his whole adult life was about, as he put it, quote unquote, squeezing the last drops of slave blood from out of his body. And he, see, so he believed in freedom. That was his leading value. And I feel like when I teach Chekhov, I can feel that in the texts because the plays are meant to be rehearsed with freedom. You need to know who the characters are and understand their given circumstances. And then every night you act, it should be completely different. Mm-hmm. If that's true, and I know it is because of all these years teaching it, how do you direct it? I mean, if, as John Barton of the Royal Shakespeare Company says, that if all of acting is a negotiation between that which is set and that which is unset, how do you arrive at anything set mm-hmm. with a playwright like Chekhov? Mm. How do you? How, right. Yeah, and so I went find? in with that. Qu- I mean, that was my sort of, um, I had various sort of existential questions with Uncle Vanya that pertain to my own <laughs> impending death <laughs> and <laughs> current middle age. But in terms of aesthetic questions, my big question was, how do you direct Chekhov? How do you set that which only wants to be free? Mm-hmm. So this is what I did. We table worked the bejesus out of it. Sounds familiar. So far, so so far, so unsurprising, <laughs> right? Yeah, sounds familiar. <laughs> so we just table worked the, the living daylights out of the play. And then I said to the actors, okay, now everybody, I'm giving you two days off. You're going to go and you're going to learn the lines for act one. Go off and learn the lines cold, really learn the lines. And also come in with a few costume pieces that are just rehearsal pieces that bring you into the world of your character that make you feel like you're dressed, that you f- make you feel like the character. And then me and my set designer and my stage manager and my assistant director, um, you know, we went through great pains to make sure that by the time the actors came back, we had really created a set, which was almost like a film set. And we, you know, we were direct, I directed it in the traverse, like a tennis court, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, It's my favorite arrangement for theater. Totally. It's the best arrangement ever. By far. By far. 
And so it's very environmental that way. You don't, you know, you don't have to worry about sight lines that much. You just have to make sure that you occasionally open things up to the other side, but it can, you can almost escape into that sense of environmental. It's less presentation. It's invisible. It's invisible. Exactly. You feel like you're actually peeking into the brownstone, like peeking, you know, peeking through the curtains. And it inherently activates your imagination because yes. there's an audience bank across from you. Yes. So you're immediately part of the creative process. That's right. An and the member. intimacy is just off the charts because the you also can feel that the audience can see you and they can see each other. It's like this kind of like enveloping secret that everybody is sharing together. So we created the set and then I created this kind of like massive props table with, you know, knitting from Rena, various forms of like liquor and glasses and, you know, pumpernickel bread and other Russian snacks and lots of books and playing cards. And we even found somewhere a stuffed pheasant just for, we put on the table just for the hell of it. Oh, wow. All this stuff. And then the actors showed up in their sort of makeshift costumes and I said to them, and this was a huge risk for me. I'd never done anything like this before, but this was, again, to answer the question, how do you actually direct that which wants to be free and spontaneous and irreproducible? And I, they showed up in their costumes and I said, okay, I'm going to give you 30 minutes to warm up and, and check out all the the fun things on the props table. And then we are going to do a run through of act one. So they'd never, I mean, this reminds me of what you do with yeah, your Shakespeare and bars, there's, right? There's a, you just said that and there was some deep part of me that just got immensely happy as an actor. It's like, <laughs> oh. you mean we're going to warm up for a half an hour and then I just get to play? Exactly. And meanwhile, oh. these are actors that have never once been on their feet with the material. We've mm -hmm. only sat around a table and talked for hours and hours and hours and hours and, and hours until we feel like these characters are our friends and we understand their innermost secrets. And yeah, then we just unleash their bodies into this physical living room where they live. Mm -hmm. And we did that for every act of the play, right? There are four acts of the play and we did that for every act. And every act, my fabulous um, Uncle Vanya, his name is Enrique Arce, after the, after the run of the act, he would say, how is it ever going to be that good again. Mm. <laughs> and that becomes a whole new question. Yeah, I really, I didn't want to strangle the plays. They have to, you have to take the risk of setting them free every night mm -hmm. and, and tolerate whatever comes from that, the highs and lows of what come what comes. Yeah. Have you read Different Every Night? I can't remember if we talked about this. Did, yeah. maybe, did I recommend that book to you or did you recommend it to me? I, who knows that at this point? That book is amazing. It's an amazing <laughs> book. But I feel like, like that's... It's a beautiful book. Did you end up doing like that level of beat work that he talks about in the book? No. It seemed like, that seemed like strangling the play. Like I loved his principles, but then when it got down to the actual brass tacks of how to create an interpretation that has improvisational freedom... Yeah, specific. that was the one part that didn't quite align for me. Right, but. right, right. I, I, You remember it much more vividly than I do. I just remember loving it and feeling like the spirit of it was great. The title of the book says it all. Do you still have a copy? Do you want to borrow I one? I do. Okay, no, great. I have a copy. Um, uh, I can next time I see you, let's yeah. read it again and okay, talk to each other about it. Well. How do you calibrate for yourself how much freedom to give them and how much of a framework to, to put on the work. You know, it's interesting. A huge part of directing, I mean, I was just talking to my boyfriend this morning. He teaches directing. Mm -hmm. He's been teaching directing for decades. 
And he was talking about a student of his having a, a, a talent for staging. And when it comes to, let's say, Chekhov, I think that the way that the bodies move through space is the result of their values and of their loves and of their psychology. So to direct in terms of staging is, is, is when you think about it, extremely superficial. The bodies are going to do what the bodies are going to do once the unconscious life of the character has been clarified. Once an actor calibrates themselves to that's the character. Right, that's mm-hmm. right. That's right. That's right. That's right. With Chekhov, I, I direct through values. Through values, through love. You know, what does this character love? What do they fear? And I think directing through those is the most important thing. And then allowing all of the top level stuff, like what your staging is and what this line might mean on any given night, all of those sort of tip of the iceberg manifestations should be live. They should be spontaneous. They should be allowed to change every night. Mm -hmm. I mean, I find myself increasingly as I get older interested in spontaneity in the theater because I feel like there's actually a decreasing amount of spontaneity in life. Yes. Oh my God. Like, are you guys reading all this literature about how we're not having conversations anymore? About how young people actually prefer to text and email? It blows my mind. I heard a group of... uh a group of millennials in conversation saying that they have a fear of speaking on the phone. Uh, that, uh, I would actually agree with that. Really? I get severe anxiety if I have to speak to someone on the phone. This fascinates me because I have, I still have friends of mine. One of my best friends is uh, a woman who lives in Texas. We've grown up together. I've known her since I was 13. At least a few times a month, we will speak for hours on the phone. When I first moved to New York, I would get a voicemail from my parents being like, hope you're doing okay. Give me a call. I remember there was one instance freshman year. I sent a text message to my mom just saying, got your message. I'm doing great. Walking in between classes. I'll call you later. Love you. She called me back immediately and was like, don't text me. If I leave you a voicemail, do not text me. I want to hear from you. I want to know how you're doing. And I cannot get that. That cannot be conveyed in a text Mm. message. Mm. Please call me Mm -hmm. so that I can hear your voice. Mm. So that I can hear your voice. Mm -hmm. I had these students over the summer um, who were doing the scene from Medea, the end of the play between Jason and Medea, where she's killed their children and is confronting him and he's shattered and... And they were just trying to live up to this thing so admirably. And I acted on pure instinct at some point. I just said, this is what I want to do. I want us all to sit on the floor. I want the two of you to lie on the ground. I want to turn off the lights and I want to do it as a radio play. We, we just have to disobligate you from the enormity of this myth and just bring it down to the essential simplicity of the human voice. Mm. There's something about isolating the human voice. I mean, we're doing it right now. Mm-hmm. Right. It's intense. Talking on the phone is, it's just the voice. Hmm. I mean, that long conversation on the phone is really- f- Oh, vengeance! Being intimate. 
And sometimes you feel like you just don't want to deal with it. The intensity absolutely resonates with me. But I think there's all, because I love listening to audio dramas. I love it. And my imagination gets so easily engaged, right? I, I see the entire room, right? The sound design will pick, paint a picture for me that's in better 3D, 8K, whatever than any hmm. high resolution film can right. do just by giving that audio environment. But I wonder if like, maybe if there's a sensitivity to that type of like auditorially engaged imagination. Because the things I just, I know that I don't tend to actually communicate very well on the phone because I get hmm. so in my head. Really? And I think it might be that like, yeah. that the audio, that the audio medium ignites such imagination in me that I don't, I no longer read people accurately. Hmm. My imagination goes wild. Hmm. Isn't it in the, I mean, okay, this podcast is called This Wooden O. This Wooden O, yes. Okay. So isn't it in that monologue from Henry V where he says, um, Think when we speak of horses that you hear them. Think when we speak of horses that you hear them printing their proud hooves in the receiving earth. For tis your thoughts that now must deck our kings. I love the fact that Shakespeare is the one who created the term, the mind's eye. He created that phrase. It's from Hamlet, right? When Hamlet is like complaining about how his mother married his uncle too quickly to Horatio. And then Hamlet looks off into the distance and says, my father, he thinks I see my father. And then Horatio hilariously then says, oh, where, my lord? And Hamlet looks at him quizzically and says, in my mind's eye, Horatio. So that's the first usage of the phrase, the mind's eye. Mm -hmm. That idea of, tis your thoughts that now must deck our kings. Mm. The chorus is constantly talking to the audience saying, imagine. And I mean, do you guys know this woman, Sherry Turkle? No. She's an MIT professor who writes a lot about technology and the effects that it's having in us now. And she says that a lot of young people are now experiencing an aversion to live conversation, whether it's on the phone or in person. For example, a lot of university professors are finding that their students would rather email than come in for office hours because they're afraid that if they come in for office hours, they might mess up. Hmm. Because human, I mean, it's like I always say to my students when I'm teaching Chekhov, I always say, you guys, let's face it, human interaction is is a disaster. Right. <gasps> and, and we're meant to laugh at that and, and feel warmly towards it. And Which is what I was going to say about that too, Zimbox. Rena, what did she say? Like, my, my heart is a grand piano and I've lost the key. That's right. Like, mm. that scene is very moving, but it's also ridiculous and hilarious. <laughs> well, she's so, it's such a hurtful thing to say to someone yeah. who's in love with her. Mm-hmm. Right, but these are the things that you say. Trying, trying to communicate That's right. empathy. That's right. right. You hurt even more than someone trying to hurt. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, according to Sherry Turkle and her research, you know, people are now really afraid of that, of the improvisation of, of human dialogue, which mm. is part of being on the phone and also part of being in person. Because the, the thing about texting and email is that it puts you in perfect control of your response, but it also mm. apparently is leading people to feel afraid of the kind of murky, messy, improvised, mm-hmm. you know, risky territory of actual human discourse, which is an improvisation. Do you guys know about this whole thing about mirror neurons? No. Well, okay. It's, for example, because of your mirror neurons that that you are able to mirror another person. So for example, like, you know, right now you're like sitting with your, you know, right hand loosely on your hip and your right hand up towards your face. And I'm able to mirror it as I'm doing it right now because of my mirror neurons. 
But the thing about mirror neurons is that you're not just able to mirror physically or mimic physically. Your mirror neurons are what allow you to not only do what the other person does, but feel what the other person feels. So if I'm looking into your eyes and you're telling me the sad story of, you know, how your brother has gone missing or how your sister's an alcoholic, my mirror neurons are what allow me to feel what you feel as you tell me this. Your mirror neurons are, are, are there to essentially mimic, mirror, whatever the eyes gaze upon. So when your eyes gaze upon another human being who speaks of their, their feelings and their depths and their joys and their suffering, you have the interior experience in your, in your emotional life of that same experience. We are now spending less time gazing into the eyes of other human beings than human beings have spent in recorded history. Wow. Right. If it is true, according to all this study about mirror neurons, if it is true that our interior lives take on the quality of whatever we gaze upon. Oh, God. Then it is true that we are decreasing in our compassion for other humans and becoming interiorly more like machines. They have done studies, and for the last 15 years, we are plummeting in our capacity to feel compassion for other human beings. So when... You started as an actor. Yeah, a million years ago, once upon a time. And then did you come to directing or teaching first? Sort of around the same time. People, you know, it's funny. People saw it all in me before I saw it in myself. People uh, people were asking me to do, hey, you should direct this. Hey, we're doing a festival of one acts. Hey, would you want to, you know, so people were asking me. Um, and then people were also asking me to, if I wanted to kind of go onto a teaching track. What I find interesting on your website is your website lists you as a master teacher. When did you really step into that title in terms of your ability to educate other people? Like, yes, I am a master. I own that. Well, the truth is that I hate the phrase master teacher, hmm. and I now feel inspired to change that. <laughs> what an arrogant phrase. Actually, um, but, so, but, so, but so widely used. I, I mean, so widely used though. I'm right. I mean, well, maybe that's, I mean, maybe that just to give myself an easy excuse, maybe that's, I mean, I will say at Atlantic, mm -hmm. they use that expression about a couple of their teachers who have been teaching for a long time, who are really good teachers. And mm -hmm. I'm one of those people. Well, you know, I am a big, you know what I'm a big believer in? Mm -hmm. Um, the number of hours you put into something. Like just last week, I taught six hours of Chekhov class. And then it was six o'clock at night and I had to leave work and grab a, a quick slice of pizza. And then I went and watched a production of Uncle Vanya. Mm -hmm. And if I had a nickel for every time that that's how I used my, my hours, teaching Chekhov for six hours and then watching four hours of Chekhov in the evening. Mm -hmm. I f and I, I said to my boyfriend, I said, I wonder how many people on earth have actually clocked in as right. many Chekhov hours as I have. Mm. I mean, how old was I when I was your teacher? I was a young teacher back then. I don't know how old I was, but I'm 46 now, so... 2005. 
Chekhov was Chekhov was thirty years, so that's about. So you were younger than I am now. When I say, "What are you hungry for in your work?" My students often say, "Confidence," and I immediately, perhaps obnoxiously. Interrupt them, and I say that is a byproduct. Confidence is a byproduct of hours logged in. If you if you strive to have confidence as your goal, it'll it'll only lead to more neurosis. Hmm. You Wait. have to just keep putting in the hours. It's about hours, and so I, I mean, I would say like the whole master teacher idea is if you put in a certain number of hours on something, you and you feel like you can actually steer. The story from your unconscious life, because you know these characters and you know these plays as though they were your closest friends and family, mm-hmm. you start to feel like you start to feel more confident as a byproduct. As a byproduct of having done the work, we were actually we were uh, we were talking about this off camera uh, at one point when we did Romeo and Juliet earlier this summer. One of the things that I wanted to make sure that I did because of the way that our rehearsal process works, which is essentially we put on a show in about two weeks. And um, I remember thinking to myself, I want to be able to dive into this character as much as possible. And in order for me to do that, I can't be thinking about the words. So in the lead up to rehearsal, I'm going to try and get off book as much as possible. Absolutely. Like all great Shakespeare actors do. Get off book before. Get off Shakespeare from that sentence. (laughs) Yeah, maybe so. Yeah. But the the idea get of it done, get, get it out it, of the yeah, way, get right. the get rid of the part of your brain that has to devote time to remembering what the words Absolutely. are. Absolutely right. The first time I'd been in several processes that didn't require it, but highly encouraged it because surprise, surprise, they don't want to do that extra week that equity requires you to pay an actor to come in off book. Uh, That's right. why theaters can't do it. It was at a theater called Casa Manana in Fort Worth, Texas. And there's an actor named Ed Dixon, extraordinary actor. But it's essentially 95 minutes of Ed talking. We come in for the first table read. We're all sitting, chatting, chatting, chatting. Scripts are open, having our coffee. And then the director says, let's get going. And Ed closes his script, sets it under his chair, and starts going. Yeah. Oh! Yep. And I will say, okay, that is so sexy. Ever since that moment, I've been like, what, which actor do you want to be? Yes. And totally. all of these other actors who were very good actors, you literally saw them. Oh, vengeance! Their pants. Yeah. Because the moment you do that, it's like, oh God, he did the homework. Yes. Well, when I directed this- Romeo and Juliet and, and Mike Piazza, who you guys both know. Yes. Was my Romeo, and on the first at the first read through, he he had his script open almost as a kind of like act of kindness to everybody else <laughs> to, not, to not show off. But he started acting the scenes completely off book, and you could feel everybody react to it like, oh shit! I was like, oh, the, oh, it's it's this. We're it's, on. Okay. I didn't know we were going to be on. For me, it was more of a it was more of a freeing thought for myself because. In my mind, I was going, well, now that I know the words are there, I can start experimenting right away mm-hmm. as opposed to making sure that I've got the words for the first week of rehearsal and then starting to find the or character. Or as opposed to all of week three when the off book dates are coming up, not knowing your stuff right. and calling line and yeah. ruining everyone's momentum. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, do you guys know about um, flow state 
or what oh, they now yeah. call optimal experience state. I'm not familiar, no. You know those moments in life where you are doing something and you get in, absorbed in something and all of a sudden you look up at the clock and you're like, oh my God, mm-hmm. five hours just passed. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? That's how you know you've been in a state of flow. Or you come off stage and you can't remember what happened. Yes, or you yeah. come off stage and you can't remember what happened. And that's how you know you were in flow state. So a few things have to be true in order to achieve flow state, either as an athlete or a dancer or a musician or an actor. There has to be difficulty because if there's no challenge, if there's no difficulty in the task, you become bored. Mm. So think about like, think about having a job where all day you're told to just like, I don't know, alphabetize files. Or take three steps downstage right, then smile, turn over your left shoulder and deliver the line (laughs) this way. So it's impossible to, to achieve flow state with that because that task is so boring. It's so easy that it's not engaging. It doesn't grip you. It doesn't involve you because it's too easy. So a level of challenge is necessary for flow state. But on the other hand, if it's too challenging, if it were like, I don't know what's something that's too challenging, like, um, being in combat. Okay, great. Exactly. So for us or for myself, speaking for myself, I know nothing about that. Mm -hmm. So if I were given like a series of, you know, 15 instructions having to do with being in combat, it would be too difficult and I would check out and pull away and I would not get into flow state at all because it's too difficult. So it can't be too easy, but it can't be too difficult. It has to be engaging it has to be interesting in its challenge, but you have to be able to have a sense of progress at the same time. Mm. Now, people do their best. Athletes win the most gold medals. Actors give their greatest performances. Musicians create their most transcendent music where their unconscious is freed and the most miraculous things happen when they are in a state of flow state. Where is your consciousness going to be? Is it going to be on lines? Right. Because if your consciousness is engaged in lines, you're never going to be able... Your consciousness can only focus on one thing. It's too difficult for you. It's too difficult. And you're just focused on essentially not... Fucking up the lines. Mm -hmm. And no great performance is ever born of that. Even if 1% is focused on the lines... That's what the audience is going to see is on, as you said, trying to remember. Right. But if the lines have become so profoundly habitual, like walking is habitual, like breathing is habitual, then you can actually be free and transcendent things can happen. I memorize lines while on jogs. Right. Um, So many actor friends of mine say this. Mike Piazza says this, that it's like, you have to be moving. You have to, yep. Then it gets deep, then it gets in the bones and not just, but, but what I, when I know that I'm actually ready on a scene to move on to the next scene is when say I'm in a verse scene, right? If I can, if I can speak that one line of verse, literally not know what's coming next, breathe and it comes out of my mouth. That's how I know I'm ready because I have to learn it well enough to forget it. Right. And then you feel like the character, like, oh my God, these thoughts are just occurring to me. And then it's like, you're finding the images in the same way the character is. And so all Mm -hmm. of a sudden it sounds like a human being and not like John Gielgud. Right. (laughs) And uh, on that note of flow state and being so in the moment that you lose track, Oh, no, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. No, because no. I have another question. <laughs> okay. Sorry, Anya. <laughs> We've talked about how I personally find so many contemporary directors to be getting in the way of the playwright's intention, getting in the way of my work as an actor, getting in the way of my connection as an audience member to the story. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, absolutely. Um, I mean, how, I have strong opinions about this. What, what, where, do you, where do you think that comes from? And how is that, is that? I think that there's tremendous pressure on directors to, quote unquote, make their mark to essentially assert their own ego on a pre-existing text. 
It takes a lot of guts, but my own personal aspiration, I think that the great miracle is that when you actually just try to tell a story as written, you inadvertently, accidentally, without even realizing that you're doing it at all, interpret it through the lens of your own soul and your own psyche. But if you strive to make your mark and interpret it in an original way, all that it smells of is your own ego needs. Mm. And that really stinks. The point is to unleash your own unconscious onto the work. That's what the actor needs to do. That's what the director needs to do. Mm-hmm. In It's your unconscious. Mm. So you don't know what the contents of your unconscious are, right? right? Like a dream state. You don't know. So... If you can unleash your own unconscious onto it, and, and when you do that, all you know is that you're telling the story as written. You're not aware of being original. You're not concerned with being original. You're just concerned with communicating how the story resonates and reverberates through your own soul. You can't imagine it any other way. And if you tell it that way, pure, simple, from the heart, it will actually be completely original. But you don't do it to be original. You do it to communicate what about the story moves you, what has changed you, what helps you to cope with your own existence. And that's when you can really, as an audience member, feel that somebody was doing something pure and genuine and that any originality or lack of originality is is a byproduct. Anybody who wants to put themselves and their own ego above a great text is, I, I don't even judge them. I just pity them because mm. it means they're so preoccupied with their own worth or lack of worth. Right. I mean, look, we're all worthy and unworthy. I mean, we're all going to die in a couple of days. It's all right. going to be over. Preoccupying yourself with how worthy or unworthy you are right. is really a bore. Right. Mm. Learn what you can learn from, from this particular yeah. process. Immerse yourself in whatever feeds your religiosity. I think that the rehearsal process is like in a kind of an intoxication. You create a kind of center of worship. I think, you know, it's my job to come into the first day of rehearsal with something that I that I feel is greater than myself, something that I believe in and love or a question that needs to be examined where I feel like my own human life is resting on it in some way, something that where the stakes of it are actually important to me personally, that is at the root of the story. And then I feel like my job is to, in those early days of table work, to bring everybody into a mutual fascination, curiosity, obsession, worship of that thing, so that there's something more important than any one of us as we are trying to figure out the macro and the micro of the play. You know, you spend months and months and months and months preparing um, for a play and then you perform it for a few hundred people and it's over. It's like, it's so finite and, Mm -hmm. and the finiteness of it becomes glaringly more and more true given the fact that we're now in living in a world where everything is recorded Mm -hmm. and broadcast to the millions. And this idea of just gathering in a little wooden O to witness something that we've spent months of our life crafting. Mm -hmm. But in order for it to be worth it, there needs to be a kind of almost religious quest that is really 
personal to the people who have made it. God, I want to, I, I want to, I want to keep talking for another four hours, <laughs> but we are, we are over time. We're not even, we're not even out of time. We're over Thank time. Thank you so much, oh, Anya. It was such a pleasure to have you so on. Fun. This week on Twitter, Alice Bloomer, who was at Alice D. Bloomer, wrote, Just finished the most recent ep of Rude Groom's podcast about intimacy directing and fight choreography. Fantastic, hilarious, and very informative. Thank you so much, Alice. We also this week received our very first audio recording to this wooden O at RudeGrooms.com. Hint, hint. It's from our Patreon supporter, Amber Elby, who was at Amber Elby on Twitter. But we can't actually play it for you in this week's podcast because it's referring to our most recent live stream podcast recording session on Patreon. That episode features Deb Radloff, who's our master of corporate and patron engagement here for Rude Grooms, and also a brilliant actor who's been in, I think, all of our shows. So if you'd like to watch that interview, you can go on to Patreon at patreon.com slash rudegrooms and do that. But that episode will actually not be dropping until next month. So look to hear Amber's response sometime in March. But speaking of Patreon, we will be live streaming our very next podcast recording session this Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard time. This episode is going to feature Jenny Stewart, who's the Associate Artistic Director of Shakespeare Dallas. So if you would like to tune in live several weeks before that podcast drops to the public, please join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash rudegrooms. Daniel, got some recommendations? We should probably have a name for this part also. This week, I'm going to recommend another podcast, actually two episodes of a podcast. This is uh, Oprah Winfrey's conversation with the late Dr. Maya Angelou. This was a two-part conversation that she recorded back in January of 2018. It was really insightful and really life-altering as anything with Maya Angelou is wont to be. It is a touchstone for me in the way that I approach situations and things that occur in my life, and I cannot recommend it enough. So, Oprah Winfrey's Super Soul Conversation, part one and two with Maya Angelou. Monty, what do you got? This week, I'm going to be recommending a workshop coming up here in New York with Ashley White. Uh, If you've been listening to the podcast, Ashley White is the beyond brilliant intimacy director. She's also a brilliant fight director, artistic director, and director director that I've had the pleasure of collaborating with in some professional workshops for Shakespeare Dallas over the past few months. She will be in New York on March 7th and March 8th with Neutral Chaos, teaching a two-day intimacy and performance intensive. I cannot recommend this work or Ashley highly enough, so please visit Neutral chaoscombat.com and click on visiting artists to learn more or reserve your spot now. If people want to stay up to date with your with your work, are you on the internet machine? I am not on the internet. Um, you can find I, her on Twitter at The Woods. And, uh, <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I don't do any of that. I don't know how people have the time to do any of that. It's all automated now. I hire Russian bots to do it for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I do have a website, www dot anyasafford.com. That's A-N-Y-A-S-A-F-F-I-R.com. And that will be in the show notes as well. You can just double click on the podcast and click on it right there. There it is. Thanks, Uh, guys. Oh, of course. It's our pleasure. Seriously, it's such a joy. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another episode of This Wooden O, presented by Rude Grooms. My name is Daniel Kemper. And I am Monty. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the Daniel Kemper. And uh, I am on Twitter at Montgomery Sutto, no explanation, and on Instagram <laughs> at Montgomery Sutton. If you enjoyed what you heard, please go ahead and subscribe, rate us on your preferred podcast platform. 
Is that an end? Can we go to the music from that or do we have to do a... I think that's the end. Yeah. <laughs> Say, do something clever. Do something clever. <laughs> <laughs> the first episode you had with, I, I'm going to get a whiskey. It was really cute. Give us something cute like that. I'm going to get a whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm just being cheeky today, people. That's all you get. That's it. Like we're going to go because Daniel needs more bourbon. I do. That's, that's correct. As do we all. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of This Wooden O, hosted and produced by Daniel Kemper and Montgomery Sutton. Original music is by Kara Arena. This Wooden O is brought to you by Rude Grooms, a Queens, New York-based theater company creating epically intimate theatrical experiences in public spaces, non-traditional venues, and new media. Learn more at rudegrooms.com or follow us on social media at Rude Grooms and at This Wooden O.